Hello and greetings, and welcome to another edition of the And You Shall Know That I Am Yahweh, an Ezekiel podcast. We pick up in Ezekiel chapter 43 and verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Shabar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of Yahweh entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and between them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws, and write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. This is right in the midst of the concluding vision that Ezekiel sees of the new Israel. Uh, It began in Ezekiel chapter 40, in which we were told that it was the 25th year of the exile, uh, which was the 14th year after Jerusalem had been destroyed. Uh, There was some symbolism there. 25 is halfway to 50. It's halfway to the Jubilee, halfway to liberation. Uh, But it's also halfway. Therefore, it is a time of great despair. Um, Some Israelites, like Ezekiel, have been in exile now for 25 years. uh, And hope is very easily lost in those circumstances. Uh, Again, there's no reason for them to think they're going home beyond the prophetic hope that Ezekiel and others have given them. Uh, the socio-political reality on the ground gives them no hope. For in at, by this point, uh, in the past uh, 175 years, no one has been sent back home from exile. Um, so that's a uh, we can understand why there's a lot of discouragement and distress. And so in chapters 40, 41, and 42, uh, we have in some detail a schematic of a vision of a temple. We need to be very careful about this temple, as we can see here, uh, because it is not in Jerusalem. In fact, it is not even in a city. Yes, uh, he will see a city, but the city and the temple are in different places. Uh, We will see this described more as we get further into the vision. The temple here is its own complex set aside. Uh, It is in the middle, actually, of uh, lands given to the priests and Levites. Uh, It is not in the city. It is not in the land of the prince. Uh, It is set aside. And we can see uh, in this passage 
in verses 6 through 9 that in fact it is a very deliberate thing that one of the things that that God found so distressing about Jerusalem uh, was that his temple was bordered by kings' houses where all kinds of immorality was done, where political machinations were done, where idolatry was done. Uh, the bones of these kings were buried in the same place, maybe not literally next door, but in the same complex. And so here, uh, in this idealized version, there is all of these very de- de- clear delineations, and the temple is truly set apart. It is a it is a complex in and of itself, uh, separated from the city, separated from everything else. But that is not the most important part of this passage. The most important part of this passage is the beginning of it, where Ezekiel sees in the east gate, coming back, the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh, the same glory uh, that he saw in chapter 1 on the Shabar Canal, the same glory he saw in chapters 8 through 11 that led to destroy the city and departed from the city. Uh, as the priest, as an Israelite, the most distressing thing that Ezekiel probably saw in all of his visions was the glory of Yahweh departing from the temple because he knew exactly what that meant. It meant that God no longer was going to provide and protect that place, that it was going to be given over to the nations to do according to what the nations do. And as long as the glory of Yahweh was not present there on Zion or in the midst of his people, um, there was going to be difficulty, pain, alienation. The presence of God was no longer in their midst. And so he sees, uh, first, the temple just in its structure, but it's a dead temple. It doesn't have any life in it. But then he sees the glory of Yahweh return to it, going back just as it had left. And he's brought in in the vision to see the the, the inner the Holy of Holies filled with the presence of God. And then he is told that this is my throne. This is where I will put my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. They're not going to defile themselves as they have in the past. And now we're told what's going on here that he's supposed to describe to the house of Israel the temple so they'd be ashamed. And when they're told the, uh, all these dimensions, if they are ashamed of what they've done, they will see these dimensions. Uh, it's a very strange thing to us, very discordant. Wait a second, why would they see only hear about this if they're ashamed? Well, because if they're not ashamed, they are going to just become like the nations and be hardened in their unbelief, and it's not going to mean anything to them. But if you're ashamed, you know that you need to turn back to God. And so this is the hope. This is all hope. It's a very strange-looking hope, right? But what the hope is is that God will dwell with his people again, that God will make his people prosper again in their land, that they will be a distinctive people for God, and that God will not abandon them. It's a very powerful hope when you are in exile and all of your identity has been taken from you and it's very hard to hold on to a separate identity. Beginning in verse 13, these are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. Its base shall be one cubit high and one cubit broad, with a rim of one span around its edge. And this shall be the height of the altar, from the base on the ground to the lower ledge, two cubits, with a breadth of one cubit. And from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits, with a breadth of one cubit. And the altar hearth, four cubits. And from the altar hearth, projecting upward, four horns. The altar hearth shall be square, twelve cubits long by twelve broad. The ledge shall also be square, fourteen cubits long by fourteen broad, with a rim around it, half a cubit broad, and its base one cubit all around. The steps of the altar shall face east. 
And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord Yahweh, These are the ordinances for the altar. On the day when it is erected for offering burnt offerings upon it and for throwing blood against it, you shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord Yahweh, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four corners of the ledge and upon the rim all around. Thus you shall purify the altar and make atonement for it. You shall also take the bull of the sin offering and it shall be burned in the appointed place belonging to the temple, outside the sacred area. And on the second day you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and the altar shall be purified, as it was purified with the bull. When you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them before Yahweh, and the priest shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to Yahweh. For seven days you will provide daily a male goat for a sin offering. Also a bull from the herd and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be provided. Seven days shall they make atonement for the altar and cleanse it, and so consecrate it. And when they have completed these days, then from the eighth day onward the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord Yahweh. We have again the altar now being described in front of the temple. Uh, Altar is a very important place because that's where sacrifices are offered. And Ezekiel goes into great Levitical detail very similar to what you can find in Leviticus, about how it's going to be consecrated. Uh, he, he narrows it down, not just anybody from the house of Aaron, but the Zedekites. Zedek being the high priest from the time of David and his descendants onward. We're going to see why them in a minute. Uh, and so we just like there were all kinds of, of laws in Leviticus 8, 9, 10 regarding how um, the priests were going to be consecrated and the altar is going to be consecrated. So we have the power of consecration that's going to follow very specific guidelines so that this is the place where the offerings can be offered and I will accept you, uh, which is a very important part for people who have been rejected. Then he brought me back to the outer court of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And Yahweh said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be open, and no one shall enter by it. For Yahweh the God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before Yahweh. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate, and shall go out by the same way. Thus begins chapter 44 of Ezekiel, and we're told the east gate is going to be shut. And that's because Yahweh has come in, and of course the idea is that means Yahweh is not going out. It will not be one of the main ways in or out. Uh, that will be north and south. But the in the vestibule of the east gate. Notice he doesn't go into it, but he sits in the vestibule. In the opening leading to the door of the east gate, that is where the prince will sit. Very interesting, Ezekiel never calls him a king. Ezekiel is very hesitant to use the word king. Uh, might have a, a, an effect from the past on it. So he speaks of the prince. And so the prince is going to be... Uh, ostensibly the Davidic ruler who is going to reign over all of this, he will commune with God by sitting in that vestibule uh, at various times. In verse 4, Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked, and behold, the glory of Yahweh filled the temple of Yahweh. And I fell on my face. And Yahweh said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes, and hear with your ears all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of Yahweh and all its laws. And mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary. And say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, O house of Israel, enough of all your abominations in admitting foreigners, uncircumcised and hard in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple when you offer to me my food, the fat and the blood. You have broken my covenant in a 
addition to all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary. Thus says Lord Yahweh, No foreigner, uncircumcised and hardened flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel, shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me, going astray from me after their idols when Israel went astray, shall bear their punishment. They shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the temple and ministering in the temple. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before the people to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord Yahweh, and they shall bear their punishment. They shall not come near to me to serve me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things and the things that are most holy, but they shall bear their shame and the abominations that they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple, to do all its service and all that is to be done in it. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord Yahweh. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall approach my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. When they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall wear linen garments. They shall have nothing of wool on them while they minister at the gates of the inner court and within. They shall have linen turbans on their heads, and linen undergarments around their waists. They shall not bind themselves with anything that causes sweat. And when they go out in the outer court to the people, they shall put off the garments in which they have been ministering, and lay them in the holy chambers. And they shall put on other garments, lest they communicate holiness to the people with their garments. They shall not shave their heads, or let their locks grow long. They shall surely trim the hair of their heads. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. They shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but only virgins of the offspring of the house of Israel, or a widow who is the widow of a priest. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common, and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. In a dispute they shall act as judges, and they shall judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed feasts, and they shall keep my Sabbaths holy. They shall not defile themselves by going near to a dead person. However, for father or mother, or for son or for daughter, or for brother or unmarried sister, they may defile themselves. After he has become clean, they shall count seven days for him. And on the day that he goes into the holy place, into the inner court, to minister in the holy place, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord Yahweh. This shall be their inheritance. I am their inheritance. And you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, and every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. And the first of all the firstfruits of all kinds, and every offering of all kinds from all your offerings, shall belong to the priests. You shall also give to the priests the first of your dough, that a blessing may rest on your house. The priest shall not eat of anything, whether bird or beast, that has died of itself, or is torn by wild animals. So the rest of chapter 44, and really the rest of the description of the temple, uh, chapter 45 and beyond, will spend less time on the temple and more looking at the rest of the picture of Israel. Uh, we have specific guidelines about who is going to do what. First of all, uh, he is brought to the temple in front of it, sees the glory of Yahweh, and he's told, enough. Enough with these abominations. And the particular abominations that he has in mind are the fact that uncircumcised people, foreigners, are entering the temple complex. And he envisions in this new portrayal that these foreigners are not going to enter. They're not going to defile. The only people who will enter this place are Israelites. And beyond Israelites, you have, uh, of course, the Levites. And Ezekiel uh, is portraying a situation where you know, we're, we're going to trust him on this one. That um, there are a lot of Levites 
who went after other gods. That is not terribly surprising. Hosea 4, uh, we see a denunciation of the priests for not doing their job. We see it in Ezekiel and other past places. Um, that's not really what's surprising. Uh, what is interesting is the idea that the Zedekites all maintained faithfulness. Um, again, we're going to trust that. Um, that it makes sense that they were the high priestly family. They were invested in serving Yahweh in the temple according to the, the specifications and the standards. Uh, any deviation from that would mean um, less... Um, food for them, less standing for them. So we're going to trust that, that the Zedekites throughout the period generally maintain faithfulness to the point where Ezekiel can now say, okay, they are going to be the ones to come before Yahweh. They are the ones who actually are going to bring the offerings into the holy place. These other Levites are going to bear their sins. And honestly, it's their descendants who are going to bear their sins in the sense that they are not going to be able to come near like perhaps previous generations could, that it's going to now be restricted to the Zedekites. Notice that he doesn't cut them off. He's still faithful to the promise that he made to Levi. They are going to be active in preparations. They're going to do the service, and all that's going to be done in the temple. But they're not able to come near as priests like the Zedekites will. So now we have this distinction between the Zedekites and the rest of the Israelites. And then he has very specific rules for the Zedekites. And these rules go back again to Leviticus. Um, interestingly, they, they're going to wear linen. Linen is uh, very light and breathable. Uh, it's going to do the best at keeping the priests cool. You know, you're out in the sun, you're out in, especially in the summer, it's going to get warm. You got all these animals, you got all this work to do. Uh, there's a desire to get rid of the sweat so that there's no defilement. Interesting, they have to leave the garments there lest they communicate holiness. Remember, this is still a portrayal uh, of Israel where you you don't want a holiness being spread into the common areas. You don't want that which is common and ordinary to be made holy uh, when it has no right to be holy. That holiness is a property which is supposed to be uh, bounded within where God's presence is. They are not to shave their heads. They're not to have long hair. They're going to trim their hair. They should not drink wine before him. They will not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but virgins or a widow of a priest. Uh, They will do this distinction before the people. They will be judges in disputes according to his judgments. They will keep his feasts. They will observe the Sabbath. They will not just defile themselves by touching a dead body unless it's a very near kin. Uh, And even when they do that, they will be in their uncleanness. And then after seven days after their uncleanness, they will then present an offering for sin so that they could then again minister before God. And again, their inheritance is God. They don't get a land inheritance. They don't have distractions. God is their inheritance. They will eat the food uh, of the offerings. We have to remember that, yes, burnt offerings, uh, whole burnt offerings, would be totally consumed um, in an offering. But all the other offerings, even sin offerings, guilt offerings, uh, peace offerings, that that food would be eaten. In fact, with peace offerings, it's the offerer who eats some of it. Uh, Shalom, um, communing with God. Uh, But the priest would get a share. And so the priests are being told, you will make your living based upon the people bringing their sacrifices. And that's how you will survive. Of course, what's interesting about all of this is that uh, the ideal city is not built. Jerusalem is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt right where it was. What's what's literally on the wall of the temple in Jesus' day, but the Antonian fortress, which has not even soldiers, Roman pagan soldiers. Um, 
Nehemiah talks about how there are foreigners in the midst of that temple. Um, and he has to kind of purge them of, uh, from being there. Uh, so this idealized temple clearly is not built uh, during the Second Temple period, and there has been no temple since. And so, uh, again, the, the power of this is seen by early Christians, is that in this you see the picture of, of, of Jesus and of the church, uh, where God makes his presence in the midst of his people forever, and uh, where there is holiness, and this is where holiness is, and where holiness can be communicated. Uh, we're... Now, next time, we will move into the rest of the temple vision uh, and going beyond just the temple complex. Uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you then. We again thank you, and we hope you have a great day.